Now, most all of us are familiar with the fear that makes you jump, like the fears that make you jump, the kind of, you know, back of the brain, subconscious, immediate. You see the, the, the snake and you jump. You see the spider on the wall and you either go into fight or flee mode. Whatever it is, whether you're jumping to fight or jumping to flee, there's the fears that make you jump. And, and these are, for the most part, really good fears. They keep you alive, Right? The fear that if you see a snake and you, huh, I've got to do something different now because the snake is here, is it, it keeps you alive. It's a good fear. Um, and it's also the fear that's really fun to mess with people with. Um, so when we were in North Carolina, um, I, um, we were like cleaning up. We were staying at my, my in-law's house and we had all these toys and, you know, memory boxes. And I came across this little vibrating mouse that when you turned on and put on the ground, it would kind of shake and then the tail would move. So it would go in like circles and stuff like that. And um, my mother-in-law, my, my children's grandma, um, is terrified of mice. And um, I just had so much fun with that, like m- m- scaring her. Um, she comes down the stairs, and, and I was actually getting the kids in on it too. So the, she comes downstairs into the basement, and the little mouse like scurries across the doorway, and she freaks out. The best moment was when she was standing, and she had like her foot up, and so the bottom of her flip-flop was down, and I turned it on, and I like put it into her shoe, and um, it was great. You guys all are like, I thought this was funny, but you guys are like, you're a sociopath who picks on grandmas. Um, so all that to say, we're all familiar with the fears that make you jump, the, whether we're jumping to fight or flight, you guys are familiar with them. And they're really fun to mess with people on unless they jump into fight. Then it's not very fun. It's fun to watch people scream and run away. It's not fun when people respond by punching a hole through the window. Um, I did that once. Um, it was a bad prank, another story, but now you want to know it. So what's interesting here is Paul, Paul's whole thing is at the very beginning of our passage in verse 15, he identifies that he's talking about a particular kind of fear here. And it's not the fear that makes you jump. For him, he says, it's the fear that you fall into, if you know that language. It's actually, it can be translated in other places, the fear that leads you. What Paul's talking about is those kinds of fears that don't, ah, spider. He's not talking about you've been, delivered from some kind of fear of spiders. He's talking about, in particular, those fears that you sink into. The kinds of fears that keep you awake at night and greet you in the morning before you ever get to the coffee machine. Those kinds of fears that consume, that control, that hang over your life and lead you. Those fears that are maybe not just that I'm unloved, but the fear that I am, by very nature, unlovable. Those fears that keep you up at night, that you are insignificant, that you do not matter. Those are the kinds of fears that Paul's talking about, the fears that you submerge into, the fears that you'll be without the proper knowledge or know how to keep yourself from being hurt or harmed, the fear that you're without the support system, the guidance and the people that you need closest, the fear that you'll be trapped in pain or deprivation, the, 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 the fear that that you'll be controlled or manipulated in whatever way that may take. The fear of being fragmented, falling apart. The fear of actually, in my very nature, having some kind of flaw or corruption within me that is going to destroy my whole life and I won't know it until that thing finally shows up and does it. We all have these kinds of fears, those things that keep you up at night. Those fears that you, just, that, that you like Paul says, fall into. 
It's the kind of fears that Paul specifically describes for us. They're not just the fears in verse 15 that we fall into, but specifically he refers to them as slavery. These fears aren't just the fears that we fall into. They have a way of enslaving us, controlling us. The imagery that Paul is pulling on here comes from uh, back in the book of Exodus with the Israelites enslaved to the Pharaoh and the Egyptian taskmasters, always ruling them, never supply, but always saying, work, work, work. Paul's idea here is that these fears are like taskmasters, calling you out of bed every morning, keeping you going, shaping all of your decision-making. And so if my great fear is that I am unlovable, the slavery of that fear is that I must manipulate love from others others. I must force people to love me by going about and doing all that I can. If my great fear is that I am insignificant, then what I must do with my life is chase after and give all that I have to finally reach that level of significance. If I do not matter, I must be so different and unique that I must matter. If I don't have the proper amount of resources and my fear is that I'll be without, then I must hoard and hoard and hoard all that I can so that I will always have what I need. We get codependency out of this. I'm afraid that I will be without the support system that I need. And so we go towards enmeshment and codependency. Why? Because of the slavery of fear works this way. If I'm afraid of being controlled and dominated, then I will be the one to dominate and control everything around me. If I'm afraid of chaos, then I will become the sort of person who is always keeping the status quo never able to enter into conflict because that's my greatest fear, even though the great peace that my heart may long for may come through that conflict. You see how this slavery, these taskmasters that sit over us, it, it, to, to zoom forward on the story of the Jewish people, it, it, it just, it, it's like the slogan that the Nazis put over their concentration camps, work will set you free. Over all of these concentration camps, put over the top of them in German was work will set you free. And so they entered into, but what we all know, history tells us, is this was absolutely a lie. It was extermination through labor. And this is the same way these fears work. We believe that if my great fear is insignificance and then I finally can get that significance, but what happens is that significance is never enough. And it's an ongoing treadmill that winds us down. We're just we're controlled by these fears. We're enslaved to these fears is the language that Paul uses. And so the directing question then is where do these fears come from, right? How did, how did this get in here? And so if we were to ask most therapists, psychologists, and almost every Wes Anderson movie, the answer would be in some form of a father wound. That the primary motivating thing is that at some point, this is what's, what's set out before us, is that these forms of reactivity to fear ultimately deal with some form of a father's anger, a father's apathy, or a father's absence in some way trying to appease that father's anger. If I am the perfect good little boy, then I never have to worry about dad getting angry. Or if dad is angry, then I will take on the, the powerful person so that nobody like dad will ever be able to hurt or be directed at me with that kind of anger ever again. If dad was absent, then I'm constantly looking for some kind of relationship to fill that space, to be that presence for me. If he was apathy, I'm going to do everything that I can to prove that dad was wrong that he should have given me more attention. It, it compels us. You know, there's a, there's a language that's been used to, to diagnose so many eating disorders in young women. They refer to it as the father hunger. 
that so many young girls growing up longing for the presence and the attention and the desire, wired to need that, in the absence of it, it takes the form of anorexia, bulimia, father hunger. Now, that's dark to, to bring it up again. The boss, Bruce Springsteen, says, rock and roll is all about daddy. It's one embarrassing scream of daddy. It's just fathers and sons, and you're out there proving something to somebody in the most intense way possible. It's like, hey, I was worth a little more attention than I got. You blew that one, big guy. And it's, it's rock and roll. It's entertainment industry as a whole. It's the tech industry as a whole. It is ministry as a whole. It is so proponent for pastors, guys like me, to get up here. And so much of the teaching can be just a form of me going, Daddy, do you see what I'm doing? So many of us walk out of life with this father wound, trying to answer a father's anger towards us that we were never good enough. That could be outright abuse or just a perfectionism that we could never meet. Their, their apathy, that we just feel like God, that God, that father, we'll get there. But the father, our dad, might have been physically present, but was what some have coined the language of a chair dad. Went to work, and then, yeah, they came home, but then sat down and tuned out. Or that they were just absent altogether, whether through death or through, for so many of us, divided homes where we never saw dad much, if at all. And so what's going on here is, is this is what, I'm, I'm just saying this to say, this is what most psychologists, therapists, and like I said, almost every Wes Anderson movie would, would, would name. But the question is, what about for those of us that were raised in like fairly healthy families? Like my dad was present, like, you know, maybe he had some kind of rules or whatever, or he was maybe sometimes could be a little bit distracted, or maybe sometimes he wasn't around. But like for the most part, he was there. Like, why is this just as controlling for me as it is for someone else? Why do we all... Maybe the volume is at different levels, but seem all in some way to be compelled and drawn by this kind of, these deep-seated fears of trying to answer some form of apathy, absence, or anger that we feel residing over us. So enter, enter the story of Scripture here. Enter the story of the Bible with me. And what we find is that this is the primary story that the Scriptures are dealing with. They're going back to page 3 Going back to page three, we're introduced to this enemy, this deceiver, who Paul, in our passage, refers to as the spirit of slavery. This presence that whispers into each and every single human, you cannot trust God. You cannot trust God. And the primary, one of the primary ways that the, that the spirit of slavery whispers that is by pointing to our father's their presence or absence, as exhibit A. And sometimes this can be absolute abuse that we've suffered that he points to. Sometimes it can be just the exaggerated failures of a pretty good dad. But all the same, if the enemy, the deceiver's primary desire is to separate humanity from God, it uses one of the most formative relationships in our lives which could be a key to a good, healthy view of God and subverts it, turning it around, where what we do is we move it out into our lives believing that ultimately God is angry with me, that God is absent from me or that God is apathetic toward me. 
So the great fear that we name as the father wound, yes, is the father wound, but it goes back not just to our, our biological parents or whatever, but to our actual creation, the one in whom we all have our source. It's that relationship that we're alienated from. And that's why everybody is compelled by it while we're all screaming, daddy. But what's so good news, because this could be bad news if we just ended here, is what Paul specifically is focusing on in verse 15 is he's saying that this kind of spirit of slavery that enslaves you in fear is precisely not the spirit that belongs to those who are in Christ. For those who are partakers in the divine nature, for those who have the spirit of God within them, this is primarily, what does he say in verse 15? The spirit that you did not receive. What he says instead is that you have received the spirit of adoption. This is his, one of his nicknames for the Holy Spirit, for God's empowering presence is the spirit that brings about a work of adoption within you, taking you from an orphan mentality, a scarcity mentality for your life, reaching for the influence or the significance or the safety and allows you to stand in a place of knowing yourself as adopted. Kind of a working definition for adoption here. It could be it's a, a new identity of belonging and beloved coming out from our fears and receiving a new identity that I belong to my father and I am beloved by him and loved by him. That he's not absent from me, but present. That he's not angry with me, but receiving and compassionate and gracious. And that he's not apathetic to me, but deeply resounds with a primary love for me. Paul says, this is not the spirit that you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but the Holy Spirit who brings about this work of adoption. Now, some of you think that, that maybe I'm getting too much out of the fear stuff and like connecting it to the daddy wound. That's what, that's what Paul does right here. Paul says the opposite of the spirit of slavery that is falling into fear. He says the opposite of that is proper relationship with God as your father. And so this is what, the, this is what God has brought about, a new identity spoken over you. Over your fear of insignificance, the adoption of child of God speaks over you deeply significant. You belong to the creator. In the midst of you feeling like you do not matter, there is a promise that you do. In the midst of you being without support, if God the Father is present and attentive to you, you will never be without the support system that you need. The fears of being controlled and you're handing yourself over to the Father and entrusting myself to him. But worth pointing out here is that the very, um, he uses the word twice, both to talk about what we haven't had and also what we have, is that for Paul, this spirit of adoption is not something which you have achieved or will achieve because that would be just to fall back into fear, always trying to appease the apathy and the anger and the absence of God. But neither is this adoption something that Paul assumes that all of us just have by being here. Just the fact that you're humans. Paul uses this specific language twice. He says that it's not something that you achieve or that it's assumed, but it's something that you have received. The spirit of adoption dwelling and being within you is a gift that comes from another. Is a gift that's been given to you. Paul writes in an earlier letter, Galatians chapter 4, when we were in slavery under the spirits of the world, just notice that Romans 8 is just like him riffing on this, right? When we were enslaved to the spirits of this world, God sent his son, born of a woman, fully human, fully God, to redeem us so that we might receive adoption. 
So we have received the spirit of adoption. Galatians 4, we would ask how. Galatians 4 answers, how do you receive this adoption? Through the redemption, through the liberation, through a freeing work that is accomplished through the God sending the one who is truly his son to be human for you and I. So though you and I have not achieved this, and though it is not assumed about us in very nature, it, it is with Jesus. When you have questions about what does it mean to be a child of God, what is the lived experience of a son or daughter of God, you look at the life of Jesus and you see it. Just read through the Gospels. Oh, that's what it's like. But more than that, Paul's focus is not simply that, that God sent his son to give us an example of what it means to be a child of God, but to do this redeeming work to shape something within the hearts of humanity and within this world that liberates you from fear. And so how does this happen? As we always get every week here, as we end up talking about the cross of Jesus. Just to, to reshape whatever you think about Jesus' death on the cross, to maybe just reshape and invite you. One way that we could perceive the cross of Jesus as being as him entering into the depth of the fears that you fall into and allowing them to exhaust themselves on him. What is, what is your great deep fear? That you are unloved? Look at Jesus on the cross entering into being scorned and unloved by every single person that he knows. Is your great fear of being abandoned by those closest to you? All the disciples fled from Jesus as he went to his cross. Is your fear of being controlled or violated, manipulated? Is it physical pain and being trapped in that? You look at Jesus on the cross, it's him entering into the depth. Name your deep fear and see that that is exactly what Jesus has entered into on the cross. And he allowed it to extinguish itself on him. But more than that, it's not just this, it's, it's a redeeming work. Because what happens is all of our fears move from Jesus, move from us and go on to Jesus, that what Jesus ushers and brings out through his resurrection and sending of the Spirit onto us is now the replacement of each of those fears. As we get everything that, that Jesus has, as true son of God, as true child of God, everything true of Jesus, as my fears go to him, all of that freedom comes back on me. And so whenever I have fears that resound and come up about my insignificance, all I have to look at is go, man, Jesus entered the depth of insignificance. I think this is bad, that I don't have enough followers on whatever. Like, I think this is bad, that I got passed over for the promotion. I think this is bad, that I, that I can't find a job right now. I think this insignificance is bad. Look at what Jesus entered, the depth of my fear. If I think that I am without support, Jesus had everyone abandon him. If I think I'm going through a moment of, of suffering, but look what Jesus entered into. He went into all of the depths of my fears and then gave me all of the freedom and life that comes through the spirit of adoption. So whenever I now get worried about my father God being angry with me, I just look at the cross and I realize, oh, like Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I immediately am able to extinguish my fear of condemnation under the fact that Jesus has entered into it for me. When I get worried that God is somehow apathetic towards me, I look at the cross of Jesus, the redemption, and I go, see what great love the Father has poured out for us that we should be called children of God, in the words of 1 John. I never have to worry about God's apathy towards me. Jesus went, he clearly loves me. 
John 3, 16, look at the sort of love that God has loved us with, that he sent his only son. If you ever worry that God is apathetic, meh, about you, the cross just, just puts that right down. And if you're worried that God is absent from you, you look at the incarnation that God sent his son fully into the human story, that in the words of Hebrews, there is nothing you can go through which God goes, you know, I don't really know what that's like. And so in all of this, the, the redemption that work that the cross brings out is that as Jesus enters into his cross, as he then comes out of the tomb on Easter Sunday, through the sending of his spirit into you and me, the spirit of adoption that's operating in here is from moving from seeing God as angry or apathetic or absent to what Paul moves into now is to say that we now relate to God as Abba, as Father. It's the Aramaic word. We've been some of the first words the little kids learn speaking Aramaic. You know, we da, 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 right? Aramaic, ab, ab, abba, baby talk. And this is the language that Paul invites us to relate to the infinite, holy creator God who has brought about all this redemption for us is this deep level of, of dependence, like, I just, I mean, I'm at, like, if I called my dad daddy today right now, that would be, right? It would feel like way too, maybe some of you do. Okay, that's, you guys did not resonate with that. Some of you call your dad. <laughs> all right. But um, that's great for you. Um, but all that to say is, is we just, we, we intuit. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's humbling language. It's language of dependency. It's language of trust and intimacy. And it's, and it's language that is completely unique to the world before Jesus walked on the scene. See, as you read through the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, you've got God talked about as our heavenly father, like we prayed in the Lord's, you know, Lord's heavenly father. You've got that kind of language. But this, this invention, Joachim Jeremias was a scholar about 100 years ago who just followed over the prayers of Jesus. And one of the things that he identified was that looking at the fact that we're reading um, a Greek New Testament, a little Bible nerd moment, a Greek New Testament, but Jesus largely would have been speaking in Aramaic, then most of the fathers that we find throughout the Gospels when Jesus is talking and teaching would have been Abba. So Jesus is, is walking around with this unique new way of relating to God with this intimate, dependent, baby talk language that nobody ever would have ascribed to like the infinite God who hung the Milky Way galaxy. As, as, as Abba. And yet this is Jesus's primary way to pray that he talks about. And so what's unique, why I'm connecting back to this, is when we, as, as Paul says here, begin to speak with Abba, we're stepping into, not assuming or believing we've achieved, receiving from Jesus his relationship with the Father. The way that Jesus talks to and talks about God becomes the way we talk to and talk about God. And this is more than just like theological stuff. Paul's very clear to say, uh, the spirit himself, oh, sorry, go back up to that one right there. Instead, you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we answer on a theological test, by whom we put on a coffee cup, by whom we know intellectually and process and perceive our worldview through the lens of this sort of fatherly connection with the divine. The language is cry out. Paul's interest here is not just that you get in your mind theologically that God is your father, but this crying out is emotive language of prayer. That the experience 
experience of God in prayer or when you're going through suffering and crying out is a heart that, like my two-year-old, cries out, Daddy. Like my six-year-old daughter, when this morning, I was sitting in the back working on my sermon, and um, we had, where's Kyle and Courtney? Courtney gave Emma a big, I'm not holding this against you, gave Emma a big um, bag of all of her crafts as she was moving, and in there was this little thing of glitter, blue glitter. She goes, look what Courtney gave me. And I was like, that's going away right now. If you know anything about me, we're, we're an anti-glitter household. And um, Emma was like, come on, please, please. And Aaron then joined in, like, come on, Ryan. Like, don't be such a, not even 24 hours go by. And this morning, the glitter's all over the, the floor. So, and I just said, we'll get it after church. But all that to say, that like in that moment, Emma comes back. It was actually Arlo who opened it, our two-year-old. But in that moment, one of the first things that happened was Emma seeing the mess that had been made, calling out to daddy. Like she, when just that, this is the pot, like it's not just, oh yes, I know my, my father in heaven is for me, not against me. And so I am no longer a slave to fear. But he's saying, this is, we cry out. This is, this is your emotional experience. Do you feel like, you, man, I wish I prayed more. You know how you get there? Not by beating over your head that you should pray more. By, by having this kind of experience be the way that you perceive God. That's, that's how I can tell where someone's at in their journey of understanding the work of what Jesus has brought about. When they talk about, I really should be praying more. That's one thing for a man. I just, I, I, just, I wish I had more time. Maybe I'm, yeah, I'm working through my priorities, but I, but I want to. I, I, that's my desire. Not, not with an ought, but a, a wish. I wish do you see what I'm saying, what Paul's getting at here as he's developing this? This is the life of what it means of the Spirit of God residing and working within you. To have the redemption that God has brought about be residing within you. We cry out. It's a language of deep prayer. Abba, Daddy, Father. He continues in verse 16 to say, the Spirit himself, te- oh, uh, before we keep going. Oh, I'll loop it back in in a minute. Verse 16. There's a really good quote I want to share. Okay, verse 16 Uh, He continues, Paul says, uh, the spirit of adoption himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. So this links back. He says, when we cry out and pray, Abba, Father, when I'm relating to God on these fatherly terms in prayer, having this emotional experience where this is how I know God, Paul says, if, if this is one way to read this, that what Paul is saying is that is this little evidence and sign that you are a child of God. Nobody calls out to God. Nobody experiences and wants to desire God that way except for someone who is God's child. And so you're always like, man, I just don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know how I'm working through this. Paul says, are you pursuing and chasing and and longing for a deeper experience of God as father? Then he's like, you are in. That's one way to read it. But one way you can translate verse 16 in the Greek that Paul writes is the spirit himself testifies not together with, but to our spirit that we are God's children. So this way of saying is not that when I'm praying this Abba prayer language that's coming out, that when I'm praying to God as Father, as Abba, that, that, that together with is that there's this, this like symbiotic relationship with the Spirit of God where I'm knowing God as Father. That's the with stuff. But if we read this as to our, then what Paul is saying is that when we pray Abba, the Spirit comes alongside those prayers and confirms that identity and heals that identity within us. The Spirit is, as we're praying to God as Abba, the Spirit comes and witnesses to our hearts. 
he takes deeper the reality of us as son or daughter of God and God as Abba. Brandon Manning, who wrote all about this kind of stuff and in the books that he wrote and sermons that he gave, he told one story of being at this conference and retreat. He was a um, Catholic writer and author, and so he was at this Catholic retreat and um, was this whole night of like healing prayer to midnight with all of these people. And he's just there praying, healing prayer. And so he goes back to, crashes on the bed, still in his clothes. He's exhausted and he just starts to get to sleep when at three in the morning, there's a little rapping at the door and uh, Brennan, and he opens the door to find this 78 year old nun who's standing at the door and she's beginning to start weeping. And so he tells me, you know, we sit down we get chairs and we sit out and um, I begin to ask this woman who at this point is old enough to be his grandmother, like what, what she's, where is this coming? And she begins to talk about how that when she was, um, when, when she was a, a young child, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this within the context right now, um, uh, had a series of abuse that came from her father that was um, sexual in nature beginning when she was five years old, um, one key moment when she was nine, and, and the way that she put it is, by the time that I was 12, I knew of every perversion and every dirty book you've ever read. Just, just, and just what she felt was carrying into her life that even her becoming a nun was part of her trying to fix that and never feeling like she could. She could not forgive her father. She could not relieve her shame. And she certainly had, she could relate to Jesus she could relate to the spirit, but she couldn't go to the God as, as father because of what she had experienced. She said, I, I only take communion when it would be obvious that I wasn't. She, I just, it just, the shame. So she begins to, so he just prays for her and she doesn't, what do I do? And so I mean, what would you say? <laughs> what he recommended to her was for the next 30 days, let's just 30 days, let's try this, is sit down in a chair every morning you just put your hands in your knees and you just pray, Abba, I belong to you. Seven syllables of which you can inhale on Abba and exhale on I, believe, I belong to you. And let's just try that. To allow this to be this 30-day little practice to begin your day that way as you feel led to bring that in as a breath prayer when you're doing the dishes, when you're around the, you know, the convent with the rest of the nuns playing soccer. I don't know what they do. Um, to allow Abba, I belong to you, just to become your prayer. And um, to allow this way of every single day, Abba, I belong to you, to remind you of who you are, of who God is, of why you're here, and what God's up to in your life. Abba, I belong to you. And so, you know, an hour or so later, he tries to get back to bed, and she heads off. And the retreat ends, and, you know, about a month later, he gets a letter from her talking about the healing work that just this simple prayer had done, the spirit testifying with her and to her that she was the child of God. Healing the work within her so that she had a renewed sense of who she was in the midst of her abuse, that she was at some level able to forgive and let go of what her father had done to her. And then the best part is at the end of the letter, she says, I normally would have, you know, signed this as Sister Mary Genevieve, um, but now she signs her letters as daddy's little girl. 
And so you just see, like, that what, what Brennan was pointing, what happened within this story is precisely, I think, what Paul's getting at here, is that when we enter into, as scary as it may be for some of us because of how we've experienced our fathers or haven't, that that simple space of entering into the prayer of, God, I'm trusting and I want to find you to be Abba, to remind myself as your child in some way, he, the Spirit does something in that space. And so before we keep going, I just, for some of you, that is a, like, like what do, how do I carry out this way? Just maybe to try, if, you, if this is particularly a difficult subject for you, is to try, try on the Abba, the Abba prayer is what it's referred to as. Abba, I belong to you. And see what the Spirit does in the, that space. So what Paul, Paul continues to do here is, he, in many ways, he's just detailing out the ramifications of the gospel over and against the stories that we've come from, this, the, the fear that we've lived in, trying to find an answer to that anger, that absence, or that apathy that we all feel. And so now back to the quote that I wanted to share. Um, James K. A. Smith, in his book, On the Road with St. Augustine, writes, at the heart of the madness of the gospel is an almost unbelievable mystery that speaks to a deep human hunger only intensified by a generation of broken homes to be seen and known and loved by a father. Maybe navigating the tragedy and heartbreak of this fallen world is realizing this hunger might not be met by the ones we expect or hope will come looking for us. But then meeting a father who adopts you, who chooses you and sees you a long way off, comes running and says, I've been waiting for you. This is precisely what Paul's guiding us in, moving out of fear and into the freedom of being Abba's own. And what, what Paul now moves to as he comes out of verse 16, or moves out of 15 into verse 16, or sorry, I'm so sorry, um, 17, um, is, is Paul, well, just look at verse 17. Paul says that if this is all true of us, this new relationship with God as our father, he says, if we are children in the present tense, he reminds us or gives us a vision to see that we are also heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So what he wants to do is now what he's saying is in the same way that that kind of slavery of fear that moves in this fear spiral of worse beginning, worse beginning, worse beginning, worse moving down, he says through adoption that that fear spiral has now been replaced with this ascension of hope, moving further up and further up and further up, moving from fear of insignificance to you being an heir of God himself. It's so, I love that Paul does this right here. He doesn't say that you're an heir of heaven, your inheritance is like you'll get heaven. What's your inheritance? God himself. If you ever worry about the apathy of God, that God's like kind of putting up with you, sure he'll let you into heaven if you're good enough or whatever. Right here, God's inheritance, what he wants to give you is not sure you can tag along in heaven with me. Just don't bug me too much. He wants you himself. The father, the son, and the spirit wants your inheritance to be him. Look at the relationship. This is, what, this is what we're talking about. This is what God wants to give you is relationship and life forever with himself. And even more, Paul says that we're not just heirs of God himself, but we are co-heirs with Christ. That is, everything that is true of Jesus and belongs to him now gets co- we as, as, his, you know, as, his, as him being our big brother now through this adoption work. Everything that the big brother Jesus gets now belongs to us. Resurrection, new creation, eternal life. Everything that belongs to Jesus now belongs to you. 
So notice, whereas we live in the fear spiral of going down further and further into the worst case scenarios, Paul's trying to say, through the spirit, through this Abba relationship, you're not moving worse to worse. You're, you're moving further and further up into this great promise of an inheritance that is God himself, an inheritance that through Christ is, is new creation, is resurrection life forevermore. So Paul's just notice, he's, he's, this adoption stuff shapes your whole entire it shapes everything in your life. But then Paul moves us back into the present tense in the second half of verse 17. Because he says, if we're children, we're also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But then he kind of adds this, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, Paul's setting up here what he's going to do through the next chunk, what we're going to look at next week, is Paul's going to deal with uniquely the role of suffering in the life of, of, the, belief, of the Christian, of the follower of Jesus. So that's going to be really fun next week. So you should come for a week on suffering. It'll be really good. But to try to summarize this kind of briefly and really to connect to what Paul's doing here is why is suffering somehow now part of me? It seems like if I was brought out of fear, I would be brought out of suffering. Do you see that? But now he's saying that for me to get freedom from fear, I, I, if I indeed I suffer, what's going on here? Do you guys see that? That's kind of weird, right? Okay, cool. Not just me. Great. So here, here's what Paul seems to be doing here. If, the, if God, as Abba, is so committed to his world and his people that he sent his son and that Jesus, as our big brother, is so committed to you and wants to love and chase after you to bring about redemption in your life and real liberation. And the primary way that God in Christ has done that is by entering into your suffering. Then for him to be your father and him to be your big brother, there is no way to be a part of the family other than to slowly become like them. Where you become the sort of person who now looks out at the fear and suffering of the world and chooses not to play the game of minimize pain, maximize pleasure, fight or flight from all of it, but that looks headlong into the brokenness of the world and says, I will, I will as much, like Jesus, may pray, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, but then will say, not my will but yours be done, and will enter into breaking so that you can bless." Enter into being broken and entering into the fears of others and even at times allowing other people to put their fears on you and be seen that way and choosing all the while to allow it to empty its exhaust, that fear on you and bless anyway, to prove their fears wrong. And then in doing so, to show that this is what it means to, be a, to, to share in the divine nature. And now some of this may sound like we're talking about martyrs and saints, but this is very normal. This is for every single Christian. Philippians chapter three, verse 10. We did this um, to kick off the year. Paul says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, that is Jesus, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So here we are a little bit past halfway into the year, going back to the sermon that we began the year with. Is the, this is not set apart for the saints or the super holy people. The Christian life is knowing Jesus and not just being saved by his self-giving love, but being shaped by it. Becoming the sort of person who in all of the little avenues of your life, the responsibilities and the relationships that you have, choosing to be broken and blessed in return. Choosing the way of self-giving love. 
And so this is not just for the, you know, the persecuted minority around the world. This has very real implications for you in your singleness, in you in your vocation, in your work, for you in your marriage, for you in your parenting. This has very real implications for the work that we do within the city. Specifically, like just to bring, is, is, is our, our work with Foster the City? What, what is Foster? What is any act of justice within this world other than true justice? Not just throwing votes, but true justice where we enter into the situation and know the people and the persons. Is us choosing not to look at an issue from a distance, but to enter into the brokenness and suffering of the situation and to carry some of that for ourselves and bring blessing in the midst of it. This is foster care, this is parenting, this is marriage, this is your singleness, this is your care for your neighbors around you. This is, this is the Christian life, is to be saved and adopted and then to be shaped after your big brother and your father, to become like them, to like Jesus and trust your spirit to God and then to say, Abba, I belong to you. And in doing so, I, I just continue the journey. And man, does it take work? Is it progressive? Is it step-by-step? 100%. But it all begins, it all begins in that first moment that like Paul said twice in this passage, begins with us receiving the spirit of adoption. Receiving the spirit empowering and dwelling and doing a healing work in us where we no longer relate to God as apathetic towards you, angry with you, or absent from you, but as Abba present, intimate, at work within you, that what was true of Jesus and his baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, becomes the slogan that hangs over your life now. This is my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. This is my child. 